Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Back in the old days, if your species was faced with an existential threat, you were stuck hoping for some advantageous mutation, maybe an extra fin or a slightly more sophisticated eyeball. Outwitting fate was pretty much out of the question. And as much as we might prefer to just go binge watch something and forget about it, there are several plausible scenarios whereby humanity could face extinction in the too close for comfort future. Happily, thanks to our very large brains and thinkers like my guest today, theoretical physicist Michio Kaku, we have some options. Dr. Kaku's latest book is The Future of Humanity, Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. Welcome to Think Again, Dr. Kaku. Glad to be on. So it seems to me that kind of related to uh, C.P. Snow's old idea of the two cultures, right, that the humanities and the sciences were separating off, that we may be facing something similar with respect to technology and the future. I read a lot of philosophy and literature and so on, and those people are terrified, uh, many of them, of many of the things that you study and talk about. And then there are many people on the other side of the spectrum who are extremely, extremely excited about the future, about what's emerging in technology, about where we're headed. Well, I think that we are evolutionarily uh, hardwired to be terrified of the future and the unknown because our ancestors were timid monkeys. Uh, every time they saw a tiger in the forest or the rustling <laughs> of leaves in the forest, they ran. That's <laughs> why we're here today, precisely because our ancestors were terrified of the unknown and the future. Those that weren't terrified got eaten up <laughs> because once in a while, there was a tiger lurking in the forest. However, how do we deal with things that are terrifying? We deal with them in three stages. Okay. Stage one is we say to ourselves, oh my God, I'm going to be left behind. I mean, wow, look at what's happening. I can't understand what's happening. That's stage one. Stage two is you begin to say to yourself, now wait a minute, this is useful. I could use this, the internet, iPhones. I mean, this is actually rather useful. And then in stage three, people say, ha, I knew it all along. Of course, any <laughs> stupid idiot knows you got to use the internet. And I find that pattern over and over again, that the people that are most afraid of, of technology are the ones that use it the most just a few years down the line. So I'm not, I'm not afraid of that. Sure. I think inevitably they're going to come around. This may be a sort of false divide that I'm creating here, but the people on the sort of neo-romantic side of this divide, myself included, are tending to focus on human relationships, on questions about how should we live in the world uh, together, these sorts of things. Whereas maybe the other side of the divide is more focused on things like vaulting ambitions about what we might achieve, things like survival for the human race as a whole. It seems like these are not necessarily incompatible values. Well, I tend to be optimistic about the future. Most of my friends who are physicists and technologists are also optimistic of the future because it's not a strange thought to them. These are not alien technologies we're talking about that come from Mars. <laughs> we invent them. We're the ones who, who created these technologies. We feel comfortable with them. So we tend to be optimistic. And remember that history is made by optimists. <laughs> uh, as General Eisenhower once said, pessimists do not win wars. And only optimists make history. 
And that's what we physicists do. You know, we physicists that invented the television, we invented the internet, we invented the transistor, the laser, the x-ray machine. We invented most of the 20th century. So we're not afraid of these <laughs> technologies because we invented them. History may also be made by pessimists too, if they're the ones who run away from the tiger when it's time to do so. Uh, yeah, there is a role to play for <laughs> pessimists, but in terms of in terms of ma making society go forward, rather than simply protecting what you have, pessimists are good at protecting what they have. But in terms of pushing the cutting edge forward and creating new vistas and new horizons, that's where you have to be an optimist, and that's where you have to know a little bit of science. Some of the push-pull also happens around this question of progress. You know. It is good that we have cures for many diseases. There are many things that have been discovered that have helped humanity, right? At the same time, there are certain fundamental issues among humans that don't seem to have been resolved. We still get into conflict. We still get into disagreement. New technologies like the internet don't automatically solve that. In fact, sometimes they give people cover to, be, to behave worse. You're talking about progress and winning and moving forward. And many people say, well, you know, even with what we already have, we haven't exactly managed to live perfectly together. Well, I like to think that the smallest unit of history is the decade. Anything smaller than a decade is just random noise. And when you look at decade for decade for decade, then you realize, oh my God, we've gone a long ways. You realize that our grandparents lived in a world that most people lived in their middle 40s right? and didn't survive much longer than that. You were born, <laughs> had kids, and then you died. Life was a bitch, as they say. <laughs> and we forget that. And even before that, uh, realize that uh, if you wanted to talk to your neighbor long distance, you'd have to yell, the yell out the window. Right. Yelling was the main way of communicating back then. And transportation was getting stuck in the mud if you had a horse, if you had a horse. And so compare that, the world of 100, 200 years ago, with the world of today, and you realize that, holy moly, we've really made great progress. Living twice as long is definitely better than living half as long, I, I would say. And remember, all the naysayers of today, they wouldn't be alive. They wouldn't be alive 100, <laughs> 200 years into the past because people didn't live very long. So let's talk about some of what's coming within your lifetime and mine. What are the most exciting developments that are coming? Well, the first golden era of space exploration was the 60s. But in 1966, the NASA budget was huge. It was 5% of the federal budget. Now, think about that for a moment. That's unsustainable. You cannot dump 5% of the entire economy into the space program. Didn't that happen because of fear, right? We were afraid of the Russians. That's right. And we were in a race with the Russians to put people on the moon. The Cold War was up and running. And then once the Cold War uh, ended or faded, then funding rapidly dropped to 0.5% right. rather than 5% of the federal budget. Now we're entering the second golden era of the space age. Costs have dropped to the point where India India, a developing nation, successfully sent a probe to Mars. Now think about that for a moment. That would be unheard of if that happened during the first era. China is already expecting to plant its flag on the moon. 
And so we're talking about a new era where prices have dropped right. with reusable rockets. Prices we think will drop by a factor of 10. I mean, think about that for a moment. A factor of 10 with reusable rockets. Tell me the stats for what it costs to put, say, a pound of something into space or a person into space. To put you into outer space it costs $10,000 a pound. That's your weight in gold. So think of your body made out of solid gold, and that's what it takes to just put you in orbit around the planet, or forget the moon, just in orbit around the Earth. Right. To put you on the moon costs on the order of $100,000 a pound. To put you on Mars costs on the order of a million dollars a pound. That's your weight in diamonds. Right. And so there's got to be a way to reduce the cost. And that's where these Silicon Valley billionaires come in. First of all, they foot the bill on many of these rockets out of their own checkbook. The recent launch of the Falcon Heavy, they got big headlines. Right. The first moon rocket, moon rocket, to be launched in 50 years. It was financed with zero, zero dollars from the federal budget. It was financed by Elon Musk out of his own pocket. Right. Now, NASA, of course, has the SLS booster rocket. So we have two moon rockets now, <laughs> not one, but two, which was unheard of. That would be unheard of at the height of the space race to have two independent moon rockets. That's how the game has changed considerably. Yeah, much of your book is focused on us leaving Earth in one form or another. I mean, either temporarily or establishing colonies or permanently, ultimately leaving, leaving Earth and even maybe our solar system. So when we talk about terraforming Mars, I was wondering why why wouldn't we, I know the moon is very small, but why wouldn't we start there with terraforming some of the moon? Well, the moon is extremely difficult to terraform uh, because it has almost no atmosphere to speak of, and it's very, very harsh conditions there while Mars is actually a, a cold version of the Earth. It's a, a frozen desert, but it is terraformable, while the moon simply has no soil to deal with. It has gotcha. not the, the, the minerals and things like that that can get an industry off the ground. So, so Mars is the, is the best bet in the sense that it is possible one day to create an agriculture there. With genetically modified algae and plants, we could begin the process of creating a self-sustaining agriculture on the planet Mars that feeds on itself, just like plants. And also with solar cells, we can generate energy. With lava tubes, we can create underground uh, bases on Mars. With mining the water, the ice on Mars, we can use the oxygen for breathing, the water for drinking, and the hydrogen for rocket fuel. So we could begin the process of living off the land on Mars, while the moon, we can't do that. If we were to terraform Mars, we couldn't keep it terraformed unless we somehow created a magnetic field around Mars. Is that right? Yeah. Why did Mars lose its atmosphere? Believe it or not, Mars once had oceans. There's remnants of an ocean on Mars about as big as the U.S. of A. But it's frozen water. It's in the tundra. It's in the permafrost. And that's why we want to be able to raise the temperature of Mars to melt some of this ice that's down there so that we can extract drinking water, oxygen, and hydrogen from that. And so we want to begin the process of terraforming Mars so that we can extract things like minerals, water, ice, and use it to create a permanent moon, a Mars base. And one of the other amazing technologies that I was totally unaware of uh, are these 
tiny laser sail kind of microchips that we would send as like scouts potentially into other galaxies. Yeah, we've been brainwashed by Hollywood and Star Trek to believe that a starship has to be huge the size of the Enterprise with heroic captains and first officers taking us to the stars. Nope. The first starship will be the size of a postage stamp. We're going to energize them by shooting laser beams on a parachute. The parachute will then take these chips to near 20% the speed of light. Now, that takes an enormous amount of laser power. Right. And however, if you have thousands, thousands of these penny chips, uh, they're very cheap. And you can afford to lose most of them. And a few of them will actually reach Alpha Centauri in about 20 years' time. So the first starship may actually be the size of a postage stamp traveling at 20% the speed of light, complements of a powerful laser beam that energizes their parachute. So that's 20 years time from when we're able to get the power together. And right now, the barriers against that amount of laser power are that we we simply can't generate that much energy, right? Uh, Well, the bottleneck right now is money. However, once again, Silicon Valley billionaires are looking at this and investing cold, hard cash. Uh, The U.S. government is not spending that much money on it, but Stephen Hawking, the physicist, and uh, people from Google, and also private billionaires are putting up millions of dollars to create the first starship. And so we're talking about a new era of space travel that's reducing the cost because the basic physics is well-established. It's an engineering problem to send the first postage stamp to the stars. Now, of course, once we go to Alpha Centauri on a postage (laughs) stamp, then we want to send cargo and structures uh, to them, and that requires a rocket. Now, these rockets are not going to be chemical rockets. It would take 70,000 years for a standard chemical rocket to to reach Alpha Centauri. We're talking about fusion as a possibility of generating energy on that scale. The sun uses fusion to burn hydrogen to create helium. That's why the sun shines. We can capsulize that, put that on the Earth to create fusion rockets, which will take us to the stars. Okay, here I may very well out myself as completely ignorant of modern physics, but I thought that we had not achieved any form of fusion on Earth. Is that not the case? No, we have done fusion on the Earth, but self-sustaining fusion, that is creating more energy than you consume, the break-even point, we have not attained that. However, in France, the ITER fusion reactor is being built in southern France, Kardash, France, to the tune of $10 billion. The European Union Union, the United States, and Russia are building the world's largest fusion plant to prove that we can generate more energy than we consume. But fusion, yeah, we've attained it on the Earth. Controlled fusion has been attained on the Earth, but it consumes more energy than it creates. Do we know for a fact that that won't be the case with this new reactor? The betting is, and it's a bet, okay, because every 20 years we say (laughs) that we're going to have fusion and 20 years comes by and we still don't have it, right? The betting is that it'll work on the first try. Uh, The basic physics has been done now, and we think that it's just an engineering problem to turn it on. Okay. Now, to me, the absolute craziest thing in your book was the connectome. Apparently, this is somewhat in progress. My understanding of it was that it is something like a DNA imprint of the neural net of my entire brain, that basically it's like my consciousness or my neural network represented in a computer, and that then it could theoretically at some point be beamed into some avatar or robot anywhere in the universe. 
Right. Remember, there have been three big scientific projects sponsored by the government. The first was the Manhattan Project, which gave us the atomic bomb. The second was the Genome Project, which gave us the, the human genome. And the third big project could be the Connectome Project, by which we map the brain. Now, if you have a map of every single neuron in the brain and you die, in some sense, you live forever because the blueprint to create not just the genome, but your brain itself with your memories, sensations, all the jokes, all the mishaps mm -hmm. of whatever, everything can be codified when you have the connectome. Now, again, it'll take many decades, perhaps by the end of the century, we could have a connectome. Now, what do we do with it? Well, one thing we could do is live forever. The other thing we could do is to shoot it in outer space. Right. Why not shoot your connectome into outer space at the speed of light, no booster rockets, no weightlessness, no accidents, no radiation to deal with. In one second, you're on the moon. In 20 minutes, you're on Mars. In eight hours, you're on Pluto. And in four years, you're in the nearest star. So it then goes into some sort of mechanical, some robot it's downloaded. Body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's downloaded into a mechanical avatar, which could be superhuman. Why not wake up one day in the body of a Superman, uh, breathing noxious atmospheric gases of a strange planet, soaring into the sky like Superman, uh, because you have the mind of a human, but the body of a super robot. And so we may be able to colonize the universe this way. In fact, I personally believe that maybe it already exists. Maybe mm. the aliens have already built a highway throughout the galaxy by which they send their souls on this superhighway freeway. Maybe it already exists. Uh, alien life could be millions of years ahead of us. That's easy because the universe is over 13 billion years old. Maybe that's why they don't use flying saucers and land on the White House lawn to abduct people because they already can shoot their consciousness throughout the galaxy. And to those uh, skeptics who may be wondering why we've seen no evidence of this, there might be a kind of prime directive sort of thing like in Star Trek where they just don't want to interfere with us little guys. Uh, that's right. If you're in a forest, you don't necessarily want to interact with the squirrels and the deer <laughs> in the forest. And so in the same way, if they have a super highway of laser beams shooting souls across the galaxy, what do we have to offer them? They're not going to understand Shakespeare. <laughs> They're not going to understand the great works of our, our novelists. They're not going to understand our music. Right. So why should they interact with us? They may simply leave us alone. My 10-year-old son and I have been reading your book together, and uh, when we talked about the connectome idea, he said, it's like city bikes. This is a New York program where you can just put a card in and rent a bike. He said that your body on another planet would be sort of like a city bike. Uh, yeah, you'd basically rent bodies, and in an afternoon, you could be able to search many, many uh, different uh, systems, uh, land on different moons and asteroids, and, and there would be like, like a hotel there a hotel of bodies <laughs> that you can choose the body you want, what kind of Superman you want to be in for, for the day, and then you, then you rock it to the next one. And of course, you'd have no sense of time between journeys. Mm. Even if the journey took a thousand years, you'd have no sense of time at all. You'd simply wake up on a different planet with a different body. Yeah, and I suppose virtual reality will prepare us for that as we try on different, as it becomes more sophisticated and we get used to becoming something that looks completely different. Yeah, in fact, we could get so used to a virtual reality that we may not want to leave. <laughs> That's a danger. Uh, maybe the aliens don't visit us because they spend all their time in their pods uh, dreaming about being Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers and being heroes on different star systems. Yeah. Uh, that could be a danger if 
if we make virtual reality too appealing. So here's one I'm going to throw you. My son and I were wondering about this. Let's say we had a connectome, and therefore there, there should be no reason why you couldn't beam your consciousness into multiple bodies simultaneously on multiple planets or multiple solar systems or whatever. Um, do you think that then it might be possible to reintegrate them into one consciousness, or would we be talking about just multiple versions of your consciousness going off in separate you know, life streams? Well, this, of course, is science fiction, but if yes. you could, if you could Xerox yourself, that is Xerox your consciousness by hitting the, the, the duplicate button on a, on a PC, and then you have many versions of yourself, each version would learn. Each version would begin to accumulate knowledge about its particular environment, incorporate its experiences and memories, and basically emerge with slightly different personalities after a while. So if all of you had a reunion... <laughs> All of your multiple selves have a reunion. You would have different stories to tell, different life histories, different lessons. And so in some sense, your personalities would diverge a bit. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. So the last thing I want to talk about, I think, before we get to the second half of the show, which with the surprise conversation starters, is about string theory. And admittedly, I am not a mathematician, and I'm sure many of the eager readers of your book are also not mathematicians. But... What is the simplest way to explain, A, what string theory is, and B, why it is so potentially useful in terms of our physical understanding of the universe? Well, 2,000 years ago, the Greeks asked the question, what is the world made of? And there were at least two theories. One was by Democrates, who said there are atoms, things that cannot be cut. The other one was taken by the Pythagoreans, who worked out the laws of music in a lyre string. And they said, look at the harmonies, the beautiful harmonies of a lyre string. The universe must be based on melodies. Right. Well, neither approach got very far because the atom approach required us to understand chemistry and the subatomic particles and the quantum theory. And the violin string idea was very nice, but it also never got anywhere because it also could not explain chemistry. Well, now we have string theory. Why do we have so many subatomic particles when we smash them apart? Because they could be melodies, little vibrating strings, and each note on a vibrating string is a particle. So if I have a rubber band, the electron is a uh, one vibration of a rubber band. If I twang it, it becomes a neutrino. And if I twang it again, it becomes a meson and quark and so on and so forth. That's why we have thousands of subatomic particles. They're nothing but notes on a tiny vibrating string. So physics is the laws of harmonies that you can write on strings. Chemistry is the melodies you can play on vibrating strings. The universe is a symphony of strings. And the mind of God, the mind of God that Albert Einstein spent 30 years of his life chasing after, the theory of everything. The mind of God is cosmic music as it resonates through 11-dimensional hyperspace. There are 11 dimensions? I thought there were 10. I got it wrong. Well, it turns out that string theory is the only theory which selects out its own dimensionality. Usually you think of three dimensions because you can move forward, backward, left, right, up, down. Three dimensions, period, end of story. But why three? It turns out that when you start to add all the forces, the nuclear force, the gravitational force, and all the forces, they do not combine in three dimensions. They don't fit together in three dimensions. Once you start to have higher dimensions like 10, you have strings that fit together 
and you get a unified field theory. Now, in 10 dimensions, there are five string theories, five. Each one is governed by an equation. That equation is my equation. I'm the co-founder of string field theory, which allows you to take these five string theories and write a simple equation that governs each of the five. But why five? <laughs> why not one? It turns out that when you go to 11 dimensions, you have one theory. You have what is called M theory, M for membrane. You have a beach ball of some sort that vibrates and that can create strings in 10 dimensions. The theory of 10-dimensional strings is governed by my equation. However, in 11 dimension, nobody knows. Nobody knows the fundamental equation of M theory. Some of the brightest minds on the earth are trying to find it. In fact, that's what I'm working on right now, is to try, is to, try to find that master equation in 11 dimensions that governs all five string theories. Is there any way of explaining to a layperson how you even begin to go about looking for that 11th equation? Well, when I was a child, I used to go to the tea garden in San Francisco to look at the fish, the carp. And I used to wonder, what would it be like to be a fish? Well, a fish lives in a two-dimensional world. This fish can swim forward, backward, left, right. And then I imagine there's a scientist there. And the scientist would say, bah, humbug. The pond is everything there is. There is no such thing as hyperspace. There is no such thing as the world of up, the third dimension. The pond is everything. But then I dreamed that I could reach down and grab the fish, lift the scientist fish into the world of up, the third dimension. What would he see? He would see beings moving without fins, a new law of physics. Beings breathing without water, a new law of biology. And then I put the fish back into his world. What would he tell his other fish? He would say that this third dimension is incredible. You can disappear, reappear someplace else. It's a whole new universe of ponds. This must be the way that a hyperbeing would view us. Today, we physicists believe that we are the fish. We spend all our time in three dimensions thinking that maybe, just maybe there's a world of up but then laughing because we say, no, 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 no. The universe <laughs> is three-dimensional. That's all there is because that's all you can see. We believe that there could be a multiverse of universes. And each universe is a bubble. The bubble is expanding. That's called the Big Bang Theory. We live on the skin of the bubble. But right. we now believe there are other bubbles out there. And so the new paradigm is a bubble bath. We have a bubble bath of universes, each one expanding or contracting. And then children ask the question when they hear this for the first time. The children say, but mommy, daddy, if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? What's expanding into is hyperspace, these other dimensions. Each bubble is three-dimensional, but it's expanding into hyperspace. So that brings us to the second part of the show in which we watch surprise short interview clips from Big Think's archives. This is Brett Weinstein, uh, described as a professor in exile. And the clip is called The Social Brain, Culture, Change, and Evolution. All of these types of frontier eventually run out. There is simply a limit to the number of geographical locations that can be inhabited. There may always be a next technology, but the discovery of new technologies comes in fits and starts, and there can be long dry periods where you have exceeded, uh, reached or exceeded the limits of a technological opportunity, and the next one is nowhere on the horizon. So 
human beings being addicted to growth are constantly looking for sources. And when geographic frontiers and technological frontiers don't provide those opportunities, human beings will sometimes look within their own population and figure out who can't defend the resources that they hold. And they manufacture reasons um, that they are not entitled to keep them. And so when we feel austerity coming on, we tend to become more tribal. And this is a very dangerous pattern of history. For example, what took place during the Holocaust when the German population decided to target European Jews and it made up reasons that those Jews were not entitled to continue. Um, so what we are effectively seeing in the present is a circumstance in which we have reached the end of a boom and human beings are becoming tribal because that is that is the natural transition at the end of a growth period. And we are naturally inspired to look for something to replace the growth that has run out. This is why many of these abhorrent messages uh, have become uh, resonant in the present to many people. They are waiting to hear somebody explain what population is incapable of defending its resources and to explain what justification will be used to pursue those resources and to transfer them. Many people are optimistic that technological breakthroughs will continue to provide access to growth. And this is an unfortunate perspective because it leads us into a false sense of security, not realizing that being evolutionary creatures, we are not programmed to preserve that state of growth and make it last a long time, what we are wired to do is to capture the benefits of them and bring them into use. What that means for most creatures is when uh, a non-zero-sum opportunity has been discovered, creatures create many more like themselves, basically more mouths to feed. For modern people, sometimes creating more mouths is not the natural reaction, but creating greater consumption is. And so as much as we are wired in a way that's beneficial, where we discover new ways of doing more with less that provides abundance, we are also wired to use up that abundance in consumption. And in fact, we have a dynamic in which our, uh, our economic theories, the ones that we run society on the basis of, actually define economic health. They, growth is the conversion of useful energy into useless heat and the conversion of useful materials into useless waste. So we have what I call a throughput society where we view ourselves as doing something right as we are taking resources that might be made to last a long time and we use them up. Well, I think this raises a lot of very interesting questions about what's happening in the earth today. I like to look at the question of wealth generation. Where does wealth come from anyway? Now, for lawyers, wealth comes from lawsuits that you sue Peter to pay Paul, but that's a zero-sum game. And if you ask a politician where wealth and prosperity come from, they would say taxes. But that's also a zero-sum game because you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. I'm a scientist, and I say that wealth comes from science and technology. So for most of human history, we live in a pretty miserable state of existence, killing each other 
and fighting for scarce resources until we hit the Industrial Revolution. But revolutions also create backlashes because the wealth is not distributed evenly. And so the Industrial Revolution, which gave us the locomotive and factories and things like that, also created a backlash. And we had the birth of things like Marxism and critiques of capitalism because of the creation of machines. Then we had the electric age, but that also created a backlash the large unions of the 30s right. emerged because of the mass production of the automobile made possible by the electric revolution. And now we're in this third wave of wealth generation where we have high technology, GPS, the internet, but it too is creating a backlash. For example, in the United States, about 30% have done relatively well in the last several years. And that 30% are college educated. The other 70% either hold steady or have fallen behind. And we see a lot of critiques because they see wealth generation not coming their way. But this is normal. The big question is the future. Is there a fourth wave that's going to generate wealth into the future? I think so. I think it's going to be a combination of three technologies, and that is biotech, nanotech, and artificial intelligence. I think you'd probably agree, though, that it is useful to look at the past with respect to mistakes we may have made and things we might do better, no? I mean, one thing that people do talk about nowadays is the fact that AI and robotics, uh, self-driving cars, will disintermediate a lot of people from their jobs. Like, there'll be a lot of people that suddenly will not be needed for those jobs. Now, it's quite possible that many new jobs will be created by this fourth wave that you speak of, but the question is whether there's some intelligent way we can go about managing that or trying to manage that so that there's some relative equanimity or stability as opposed to total upheaval and chaos? Well, today we don't have blacksmiths anymore and we don't have wagon makers anymore, but we don't cry about it because we have automobile workers and we don't have to have that much horse manure in our streets anymore. So then the question is, can we create new jobs right. for the next generation? And I think that social scientists, for the most part, do not understand technology and they fear it as a consequence. So rather than debate endlessly questions that are undecidable within the framework <laughs> of that question, we should debate decidable questions. We should debate the technology. We right. should debate precisely which jobs are gonna be thrown out the window. For example, in the future, we're gonna have RoboDoc. RoboDoc will be in your wristwatch, it'll be in your wallpaper, you'll, it'll be in your contact lens. You'll simply blink and the doctor will appear, which will diagnose medical problems for you, tell you what's wrong with you. And the question is, does that mean doctors are out the window? No, because who's gonna trust an image in your contact lens with your life? Right. You want second opinions. You want real doctors to be in charge of your surgery rather than a robot. Take a look at lawyers, the good news and the bad news. First of all, the good <laughs> news is we're gonna live in a world that is cheaper, more efficient, better. That's the good news. The bad news is we will have lawyers in the future <laughs> because only lawyers can argue to humans, a jury. In fact, we guarantee in the law a trial by your peers. Your peers are not robots. Your peers are people. Lawyers deal with values. Right. Values change with time. Lawyers deal with emotions, with politics, with 
uh, people's sensibility, with mores, with standard morality standards of society. That constantly changes. Now, the people in a law firm that are out the window are going to be paralegals. Mm. because they're search engines. So there are basically three or four types of jobs that are going to thrive in the future. First, jobs that require interaction with humans, because only humans can interact with other humans and know we're interacting with humans and not machines. Consoling people, being counselors, only humans can do those jobs. Second, jobs that involve pattern recognition, right. solving a crime, Robots can't solve a crime because they don't understand human emotions and human motivations. Now, why should people commit murder when it's inefficient? And third is common sense. We know that water is wet, not dry, but why can't water be dry? Well, you have to touch it, right? Robots have never touched water. Our mothers are older than their daughters. Uh, robots have never seen mothers and daughters together, and they don't know that mothers are always older than their daughters. And so things that we consider common sense, robots don't know. In the foreseeable future, until artificial general intelligence manages to be capable of common sense and consoling people and so on. And again, I'm not crying. I'm just saying, like, the AI will eventually be able to do many of those things. There are going to be plenty of jobs uh, for the next several decades. Right. Uh, right now, robots do not have the common sense of a two-year-old child. A two-year-old right. child has more common sense than a robot. Uh, robots have the intelligence of a cockroach. You put them in a room, and what do they do? They get lost. <laughs> uh, we got a long ways to go before that happens. Right. I'm not saying it can't happen. Right, right. Because in some sense, we are made out of wetware. We're not made out of hardware. We're made out of wetware. So I'm not saying it's impossible because Mother Nature did it, right? Right. I'm just saying that it's the social scientists bemoan the fact that it's going to happen tomorrow. I don't think so. Well, and if we upload our consciousnesses or our connectomes, the point may very well be moot. We won't necessarily need a job if we are simply a floating consciousness inside a data bank. Yeah. But again, that's for our <laughs> great grandkids to debate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not indeed. for us. Indeed. <laughs> okay. So let's watch the second and final uh, clip that they've chosen for us. This is Daniel Bergner, author and journalist. And it says, everything we know of female sexuality is changing because women are finally leading the research. To talk about female desire, we need to start by talking about one major misconception, a seemingly scientific theory that most of us have bought into. And that is the idea that while men are genetically programmed to spread their limitless seed and be promiscuous, that women, by contrast, are genetically programmed, evolutionarily scripted, to seek out one good man, seek out one prov good provider, uh, seek out closeness and constancy, and so that, at least relatively speaking, by this uh, theory, uh, women are somewhat better suited to monogamy, have a sex drive that's a bit less raw, a bit less animalistic than male uh, libido. That dates back to the early 90s. I went back and looked at those original academic papers that sort of put that into our consciousness via the media that sort of grasped onto this theory in the 90s. Those papers have very, very little substance to them. They have a lot of circular reasoning. They have very little substantive proof. And it, I think we as a culture latched onto them because we're eager to have simple theories to explain who we are, especially when it comes to gender. But 
We need to move on now because all the research and all the researchers that I've spent time with now over the last decade are really taking us in another direction, so showing us something very different about female desire, something that's much more driven, much more like we used to consider male desire to be a force that's full of agency and that's not that old, relatively passive conception that we've for the most part been clinging to. So let's go into some labs. So Meredith Chivers, Canadian researcher who I spent a lot of time with, tries to look past what culture teaches us and look at something more immediate. So she puts women in front of pornographic scenes or has them listen to erotic scenarios and measures their response in two ways. One, she gives them a keypad. They can rate their own subjective response. Am I turned on? Am I not? To what degree am I turned on or not? Secondly, she's got a little device called a plethysmograph, which measures the body's response. And what we're talking about, just to get technical for a second, is a little sort of glassine tube that measures blood flow in the vagina. So interestingly, over and over again, what women say they want via the keypad, what women say turns them on, contrasts with what this little device called the plethysmograph says about bodily response. To give you one example, scenario with a super hunky, handsome, close friend as the potential erotic partner versus scenario with a super hunky, handsome, total stranger as the erotic partner. Consistently, women say, I'll go with the close friend. Consistently, women's bodies say, I'm getting very, very turned on. The plethysmograph readings are soaring in response to the stranger. First of all, admittedly, we are two men talking about a video about female sexuality with a man in it. I think we're children. I think we're children when it comes to understanding the psychology of the mind. Years ago, we had Freudian psychology. When it came to women, uh, Freud simply said he didn't understand women at all. What do <laughs> women want? He came up with the Electra complex, but it got more and more unreal the further Freud got into trying to understand women. Now we have evolutionary psychology, which tries to use the laws of evolution to understand why men and women are different. According to that, the fundamental basis is that men want healthy women that can have children. Therefore, they want to have, A, lots of healthy women. And so then the female does not necessarily want healthy people, but you want men with power, status, uh, resources. Now, my personal point of view is that all of them are lacking because they only look at one dimension of the evolution of the human brain. Take a look at the human brain. The brain is more or less divided into three parts. Right. First part is the back of the brain, the so-called reptilian brain, the brain that governs balance, territoriality, basic drives uh, governed by the back of the brain. And that's the kind of brain that you find in reptiles. Look for food, territoriality, fight for mates, very primitive. Right. The center of the brain evolved later as the brain evolved from the back to the front. And the center of the brain, I think, is largely influenced by evolutionary psychology. 
that's where we do find some merits, I think, in evolutionary psychology, because that is the monkey brain. That is the social brain. And we see the dynamics in mammals. When we study mammal tribes, we do find that, yes, the, the male will oftentimes try to find healthy females by which they have many progeny. And yes, the female will try to find the male that has the most resources, that has the, the strongest body and so on and so forth, leadership qualities. Right. We do find that. But our brain is different. We are not monkeys. <laughs> we are not reptiles. We have the prefrontal cortex. That is reason. We can reason things through. We can begin to say, is this really such a great person just because they're healthy? Is that the reason why I want to marry this woman? Right. Or the woman says, just because this man has a big uh, checkbook, is that really the reason why I want to marry this person? <laughs> the, the conscious brain then begins to negate many of the reptilian brain's instincts, many of the monkey brain's instincts, and say to itself, come on, let's, let's think this through. We seem uniquely able also to imagine in the sense of looking forward into the future, thinking about possible scenarios. Apparently there are some corvids that are like burying something in order to come back for it later. But we know that humans do this to a, to a great extent. And that's related to reason, but somewhat different in the sense that when it comes to sexuality, it seems to me that humans also, that, that element of imagination also enables humans to create all sorts of alternative concepts of themselves, of how they want to live, of what their sexuality means, et cetera, right? So not just pure reason, but also fantasy and imagination in a way. What separates the human brain from the animal brain? Both the animal brain and the human brain understand space. The reptilian brain understands where prey is located, food is located. They're very good at understanding space. Monkey brains are good at understanding social hierarchy. They understand manners. They understand how you defer to the top dog. Um, so the monkey brain is the emotional brain, the brain of social hierarchies. Why are we different from the animals. Time. It's time. It's because we are bound to create alternate scenarios of the future. Let's do a science experiment. Go home tonight and teach your dog the concept of tomorrow. No matter how you try, you cannot teach tomorrow to a dog or a cat. Why should they understand time? Right. They survive and propagate in the forest perfectly well without any understanding of time. We, on the other hand, we're obsessed with time, daydreaming, trying to figure out to work your way through a problem, to plan. That's what we do all the time. So when we look at a, a woman or a man, we constantly start to imagine what would life be like with that person. So it's more than just reason. Of course, we want to reason right. things through, but it's alternate scenarios. That's what separates us. And that's why we have a memory. Because if you get an MRI scan of the brain as it looks at the future, it's looking at memories of the past. That's what the brain is doing. So in other words, memory has a purpose. The purpose of memory is to see the future. And that's why animals do not have much of a memory. They just want to know where lunch is. They want to know where, <laughs> where, where a potential mate is. They want to know where shelter is, period. End of story. They don't need to reason what's going to be like next year, where should I vacation? They don't need to know that, those things. And so then I think that that's the reason why when men and women get together, they think things through. Now, the people who don't think things through wind up very unsuccessful. 
And we're defining success as happy... In life, uh, socially successful, successful by their peers, uh, low divorce rate, uh, stable situation, uh, respect of society. The one characteristic that successful people have that is reproducible, uh, all sorts of psychological tests have shown this, is delayed gratification, the, the famous marshmallow test. Right. What is delayed gratification? Seeing the future. So you have it from Dr. Michio Kaku. We're better off keeping our minds on the future. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, glad to be on. And um, Dr. Kaku's new book is The Future of Humanity, Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. And that wraps up another episode of Think Again. Um, if you are enjoying the show and if you want the show to be around for some time to come, I'm not going to ask you for money, but I'd love it if you could take a minute or two to go rate and or review us on your favorite podcast listening platform, whether that's uh, iTunes or Google Play or something else entirely. It makes a very big difference in terms of the algorithms that run our world behind the scenes and who finds the show uh, i would love we're hovering around i think 400 reviews at this point on itunes if we were able to get that up to 500 that would be unbelievable um a thousand and i don't know i might you know dance around and put that on youtube uh, so <laughs> take a moment rate and review us and we'll see you next week with something completely different <laughs>